And so what we saw was immediately a much larger opportunity that was more accessible for us where we can make a much larger impact more quickly. And that was kind of the pivot. And we then went down that path and um, the rest was kind of history. Drones are a very cool topic. They can be scary for some. And one of the many things that we've been interested in on this show are finding the practical commercial applications for this exciting new technology. Agriculture is one that is particularly poignant. So we brought on Brendan Carroll of Skycision. He is the co-founder and CEO of a company that is using drones to augment farmers' capabilities to monitor crop stress and evaluate their entire yields, all from a computer screen and a pilot's nest. We talked about building a remote team, the applications of drones, and Brendan's own methods for finding customers and market opportunities. Really excited about where Skycision is going to go. They're at just six employees right now, but poised to break out in the very near future. So check out this conversation with Brendan Carroll. You're listening to Going Deep with Aaron Watson. Brendan, thank you for coming on the podcast, man. Absolutely. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. Let's start off. I mean, we're going to write drones in the headline for this because that's like the buzzword. That's the hot technology that people get excited about. But really at a basic level, what is Skycision? What service does your company provide? Absolutely. So um, Skycision is helping the global agriculture industry, produce more effectively, um, and helping farmers become more profitable in their operations. So today, farmers are managing hundreds to thousands of acres on average, and agriculture is a very labor-driven, reactive industry traditionally. And so what happens is a lot of these fields are managed by foot, or you know they might stop on their pickup truck, look at a specific area, but it's the rest of the field that doesn't go scouted where diseases may emerge, pests, disease infestations, weeds, what have you. And these directly impact the yields that a farmer can have. They can lose crops. They can lose acres. It affects their profitability. And SkyStation is really using um, data to basically identify those areas and help the growers remediate that. So this is fascinating because we just had a podcast with Mark DeSantis and his company, Roadbotics. Mm-hmm. Are you familiar with that? I am. Yep. I know so, Mark. so we basically talked through this union between low-cost sensors and machine learning being able to identify issues with a road at scale. And what it sounds like is something very similar with Skycision, where because you have a drone, because you have a very relatively inexpensive camera, and the ability for a machine learning algorithm to study these fields, you can identify issues like that. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So what we're really looking at is um, with the right type of sensor, we can capture infrared light, which is not perceptive to the human eye. And this infrared light is hyper sensitive to chlorophyll content or photosynthetic activity in the crops. And so what we're looking at is absorption versus reflectance levels. And we can capture that with any platform, right? We can do drones, we can do planes, manned aircraft, satellites. These are just different platforms for data acquisition. We started with the drones, but we're now using satellites as well. And when we actually fuse that with data from the field, say like soil moisture, or different soil types, we can actually identify not just the stress locations, but why it is stressed, say water stress, and actually get to a point where we can become prescriptive with machine learning and tell the grower how to react to that. This is such an exciting idea, and, it's, and the application is so clear. 
uh, the use case, the value that someone would get from implementing something like this. It always brings me back to where the initial idea comes from, how you uncover an opportunity like this, because there's really this union between technological fluency and also just market understanding that has to be made there at some point. Mm -hmm. can, you, can you talk through that at all? Absolutely. So um, I guess kind of the founding story a little bit was uh, a bit of serendipity, if you will. So I was doing my master's um, program at Carnegie Mellon. It was my last semester and I uh, was doing a uh, elective course in entrepreneurship. At the time, it was, um, I think it was probably January, February of 2015. And everyone was talking about delivering things with drones, right? Amazon was talking about delivery and thus spawned the conversation. So for us, what was we were that this Was that the same year that he did the the like commercial or news segment on 60 minutes and everyone went crazy. Was that the same year? Or was that a couple years before? Um, I, I can't remember off the top of my okay. head. Yeah. yeah. Sorry. No worries. <laughs> um, I was at CMU at the time, so I wasn't watching any TV at all. <laughs> Makes sense. Definitely not 60 minutes either. Go right. Ahead. Yeah. No worries. <laughs> so yeah, we, uh, we started realizing this trend that, um, Drone technology itself was migrating from being very consumer-oriented to more enterprise. And I thought the use case of delivery was interesting from a last-mile standpoint, but more so for higher-value products like uh, pharmaceutical goods, oncology products, blood transfusions, probably in third-world countries, right? So as we started doing customer discovery, which is you know kind of the first phase of entrepreneurship from a lean startup standpoint, we started talking to people in rural areas and a lot of them were farmers. None of them had these problems in terms of where they accessed you know, their medicinal products essentially. But what they did have is they had issues with losing their crops to pest and disease. They had inferior software systems. They were getting audited by um, different environmental agencies, sometimes fined. They had to keep an audit log. Many of times was manually written on paper. And across all these operations, all we saw was just hard hours of labor, boots on the ground, and really ineffective processes to capture information and then use that in the field. And so what we saw was immediately a much larger opportunity that was more accessible for us where we can make a much larger impact more quickly. And that was kind of the pivot. And we then went down that path and um, the rest was kind of history. Um, that was kind of the genesis of SkyCision though. Gotcha. So what I'm also curious about when you're talking about farmers in these rural areas the sales process for something like that. Like we're going to talk a little bit about running a remote company later, but just the general process of like, are you driving down the gravel road to meet the farmer belly to belly? Is this via call? Like, how are you making these connections into a community that, you know, a background in investment banking and, <laughs> you know, MBA and CMU doesn't necessarily develop a network in that community, if that makes sense. Absolutely. So I think, I think part of that is in developing um, that community, if you will, was, was a lot of hustle, right? So we did a lot of customer discovery before we decided to really pursue this, you know, full-time hard. We interviewed probably close to 500 different growers. Um, and what we found initially was a very specialty niche in vineyards uh, in California. And so that was our first market. And so what we did was we focused exclusively on vineyards. We penetrated them deep. We had network effects. People started finding out about us. They were very sophisticated. They gave us great product feedback. And from there, we started getting earned media and the reputation kind of sprawled. But it was always, um, at least in those early phases, especially of product development where you have an alpha product or a minimum viable product, putting boots on and getting out in the fields with the growers and making sure that this is in fact valuable to them, getting their feedback. Because at the end of the day, the most important thing of any tech company is the value realization of the customer themselves. And so for us to best capture that feedback is to actually get out there with them in those early phases. Since then, we've built in the kind of more effective means of capture from a sales standpoint. We can do basically uh, remote sales calls. We will do field demos sometimes for the larger customers still. 
but uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's evolved nicely. Talk a little bit about where the product started at the MVP level, that initial client, what they were getting versus its evolution over the last three years. Absolutely. So um, initially, when we started the company, it was unique because we were one of the first companies in the space for agriculture that did not have to be a drone company. So um, DJI, who's the world's largest manufacturer, opened up their SDK to third-party developers. So we were able to develop a mobile application that easily flew the largest manufacturer of drones off the shelf. So their prices have become commoditized. They came way down. We were able to integrate the right sensors to capture the data we needed. But our biggest focus was getting these things in the air initially very easily without paying to the grower themselves. Because at that point in time, these, they were crashing. The people, a lot of the farmers we talked to, sometimes they'd make their own, right? It was a very non-standard process and it was very messy. And so we, we came up with a way to do it very easily from a flight planning standpoint. And then once we were taking those images, they were so high resolution that growers could basically see their crops from an aerial perspective. And that 30,000 foot view, so to speak, gave them a lot more control over their operation. Since then, um, we've evolved really by looking at the different types of light spectrum and how those change over a period of time. So if we identify stress one week, we need to make sure that the scale is exactly the same the next week to know how much it has changed or progressed. To do that, we had to do a whole process of um, measuring the intensity of the sun and statistically calibrating that over time um, and then automating the basically the stitching of all those images together, put it in the web portal. So it's come a long way since then. But um, yeah, now it's really kind of starting to take, take off. Talk about the team behind these developments because you're talking about statistics, you're talking about software planning. There's obviously a sales and business development component. Um, and we mentioned earlier that you're completely remote. So what does SkyCision look like from a team standpoint? Yeah, so right now we're a full-time team of six. Um, myself, my background was uh, in information systems with a uh, focus on data science. My co-founder is a systems engineer, so he kind of works the whole stack. We have a mobile developer. We have a director of agronomy who has that deep ag experience of over 20 years. Um, and we have a chief scientist who is over, I think it's 28 to 30 years of remote sensing experience, PhD in the field. Um, and then we have a customer success rep that really manages and ensures that customers are receiving the value that, that we're intending to deliver. And at this point, we're starting to hit, we're coming up on an inflection point where that team is probably going to you know, double to quadruple over the course of the next year or so. Are you in a mode of fundraising right now? Is that part uh, of we're, it? We're about to be. So we're, we're kind of getting ready to gear up for that, but not yet. Gotcha. Talk about finding the director of agronomy because I at least couldn't conceptualize, not that I necessarily know exactly who I could find the full stack developer or, or some of these characters. I, I don't know anyone who's in the field of agronomy. So mm -hmm. how, did you, how did you uncover that character? It's a good story. So he's, a, he's the most recent addition to the team. Um, his name is John. And John came to us because he was a prospective client, believe it or not. So he was the head of R&D for the largest cranberry grower in the world. Before that, he had been um, one of the lead researchers at the largest wine producer in the country, and he did his PhD at the University of Florida as a um, doctor of plant medicine. So a very deep agronomic experience led, obviously, massive specialty crop organizations, and we're focused specifically on specialty crops. And um, he was looking for a little bit of a career change, and he kind of fell um, into our lap as soon as he was kind of expressed that we're like, you know, well, I think there's an opportunity for you here. And so then he came on board with us and um, it's been a smooth transition ever since. So again, a little bit serendipitous, but when you see an opportunity, you need to move on it. And that's what we did. When you anticipate this doubling or tripling of your team size in the relatively near future, 
do you see yourself maintaining the remote team setup or is there, you know, talk, talk me through the growing pains associated with that and how you make that type of decision. Sure. No, that's a good question. So we actually, um, we were really fortunate when we started the company, there was a uh, gentleman, real estate guy here in Pittsburgh, um, who owned the cube, um, not too far from here, but they gave us some free office space. Initially, we moved into a paying situation, but what happened was the additional hires that we started ramping up with weren't all Pittsburgh based. Some of them had families, some of them had homes, and it wasn't so much that it was, it was more so the focus on, we want the right people instead of having the wrong people in the right location. Right. And so for us in those early phases, if we can basically recruit someone who's a rock star and make a tremendous impact on our team, but I can't have them relocate or I don't have the resources to give them a, a science, a, you know, a travel bonus and uproot their kids from school and so on and so forth. How do I make that work? Well, we live in a digital age today. So we have tools like Slack. We have tools like Zoom where we can video conference. We have so many tools that can almost enhance productivity because now you're eliminating the, um, the necessity of commuting. Um, people are online at all hours when it's convenient for them. And so we almost have a 24-7 workforce now because of the flexibility that we afford. And so it's a really strong culture that we have here initially. Um, I do think as we start to ramp up at a certain number of hires here in Pittsburgh, we will have an office reinstituted as kind of a central point, but we will still maintain this flexible dynamic that we have because it has tremendously enhanced the productivity of our time, of our team. And you just get access to this talent that otherwise wouldn't necessarily want to be constrained by the office as well. Exactly. It's so funny that you said Slack and Zoom as you were talking about these digital tools, because I was thinking about the next question. I was thinking, you know, I'm going to ask what tools are fundamentally essential to that, but my mind already went to Zoom and Slack. So mm -hmm. I'm curious. I think that those are pretty, for, for people in the space of this digital work, of this remote work, that's very familiar. But are there any other tools outside of those two that you find to be particularly essential or valuable for operating a remote enterprise? I'd say there's two other ones when you kind of look across the, the stack, at least in the early phases, right? So those are your best probably communication tools. Aside from that, obviously your CRM, the big ones are um, HubSpot and Salesforce. Obviously we're, we're we use HubSpot. We've been super happy with it. Really easy to collaborate on dashboards. So sync between that, between Zoom, everything integrates with each other. And then the other one is um, Jira, which is an Atlassian product. And Jira is basically a sprint management tool. So basically for like agile engineering, we can track different tickets in the engineering backlog, manage different sprints, um, whether it's R&D, mobile, web, systems integration, whatever that might be. We can manage those different kind of um, product pipelines remotely as well. And it's all visualized then. So now you kind of have like a visual dashboard of um, everything in your sales pipeline, your marketing activities, everything going on with engineering. And you communicate seamlessly through video with Zoom and through messages and other capabilities with Slack. Makes sense. Mm -hmm. I also feel like there was a, maybe this is just like a weird memory, but this fear about drones and like drones being this scary new technology that to some degree or another, we've gotten over TJ's here filming. And he talked about how, you know, he has a off market drone now too. And I I've played around with them. When you think about the drone industry at large, we were connected through mutual friend, Barry Rabkin, who also is playing in the drone space. What other applications do you get excited about? Or maybe you've seen them that are outside of the agricultural application that you're pursuing. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there's a number of them. So just to kind of list off a few here. Um, so obviously we're an ag, but when you look at the drone industry itself, um, you, you, uh, like barriers in construction and mining, right? Um, 
But I think one big one that's emerging that necessarily isn't um, sophisticated yet is like asset inspection. So when you think of like energy, like solar panels, um, utility lines, so on and so forth, a lot of those are manned inspections at this point. Um, even bridges. I mean, Pittsburgh is a city of bridges, right? So when you're inspecting that infrastructure, a lot, a lot of that is manned at this point. You don't necessarily have something that can fly down there, let alone autonomously process the information you need. So I think there's a lot um, that can be done kind of almost in the infrastructure space, which is interesting. It's not our interest. Um, we're really much more so not so much in the drone space, but more so in the IoT AI space where we're using imagery, but it doesn't matter necessarily where it comes from. But again, I mean, the resolution is so high, there's going to be a, uh, an explosion of basically computer vision applications that drive different industries in the future. When we, we talk about training your computer vision and, and the algorithm, um, it takes a lot of consumption to get that in. What has that process been like? Like where does, I, I don't even necessarily know the markers or the metrics that are really fundamental to evaluating the strength of an algorithm or something like that. Can you talk through that part? Um, so we'd have to be a little bit more specific about what we were, say, defining with the, with the algorithm. Essentially, what you want to do is, very conceptually at least, is you're trying to have an algorithm give you some form of output that's valuable to your industry, right? But in those initial trials, you want to truth it versus the actual, right? So if I give it this training data set, and I know the number that I need is 98 and the algorithm spits out 92. Well, then I know that I have like an X percent error rate. And why was that? Well, we can go back, we can look and identify the areas that we now need to train it on or kind of like those outliers and accommodate them in the algorithm itself. Okay. And now instead of one piece of data, you give it 20, then you give it 200, then you give it 2000. And if it's performing accurately across those, then you're at a point where you can start to think about rolling it out to a customer base in more of an autonomous fashion. Gotcha. Mm -hmm. That's really helpful in clarifying. The so I, I usually ask about like building a company in Pittsburgh, but given the remote nature of what it is that you're doing, I, it's relevant, but maybe relevant in a different way. What has your experience been as a entrepreneur here in Pittsburgh, kind of mm -hmm. settling your roots a little bit after having lived in other areas? What is, what's your perception of the ecosystem as coming in from an outsider? It's developing. So um, I think Pittsburgh has a lot of promise for the future, and we're starting to see the early uh, stages of that now. I'd say it's not in its infancy, it's a little bit past that, but it's just kind of getting to the point where it's becoming self-sustaining, if that makes sense. And the big driver behind this is one, Pittsburgh's really rich for its talent, right? It's a good cost basis and it has a rich talent pool and that's why we stayed. The reason why I initially had to leave and why I had to go to San Francisco and the Bay Area and then even Memphis was because pretty much lack of funding at the early stages. What you'll see is in um, kind of the heartland cities, Larger investors don't ri mind writing checks when they're north of $2 million, right? You go to the Bay Area, a lot of the VCs you talk to will say, sorry, I don't write checks less than $2 million. But when you actually look at almost like the pre-seed stage here in Pittsburgh, there might be one active to maybe three tops active pre-seed investors that can get you there. And it's almost a very exclusive funnel where a lot of them are tied in with each other. So there's not necessarily a lot of capital flowing in Pittsburgh at an early stage. And I think that's why a lot of companies may stagnate, may get to certain areas slower, um, or you know, may just struggle in those earlier years. And so for us, we went outside of the city to get the resources we needed to. And now that we've secured those, we can come back, anchor our roots, 
grow the company. And we know that we can attract capital from outside of Pittsburgh as well as within it because we're now at a later stage where we can basically capture larger check sizes. So for us, it was funding that attracted us out of Pittsburgh, but it was the talent pool and the cost-effective nature of the city that has retained us. And I think the venture ecosystem at early stage is becoming more active here. Innovation Works is doing a lot to try to attract other capital from outside the region. Uh, the Pittsburgh Technology Council has been fantastic in terms of being like an ally to early stage entrepreneurs. And so you have these organizations that are saying, okay, we get we can't do it all ourselves. What can we do to build bridges? And I think that conversation about essentially building bridges is now starting to happen. And you'll start to see kind of more early stage capital coming in as that can, those efforts continue. That makes sense. We had a conversation with Rich Lunak a couple months ago about the record amount of investments that have come into the region, but it's still, like you said, in those early Mm -hmm. stages. Um, Last question before we kind of aim towards wrapping up here is your own development in the skills of entrepreneurship or just like resources, mentors, the people that you maybe spar intellectually with that help you hone in on what it is that you're doing there's there's an inherently anytime you start a company an insular nature to you know these six people who are on my team really get what's going on and there's some things we can only discuss Mm -hmm. but where do you go for either mentorship or leadership or advice or perspective on the goings-on of skyscision sure so we have um you know we obviously have investors um but that's not necessarily who i'd say that i typically lean on and obviously the team, I'm leading them. So like, you know, everyone has their own respective functions. But when I'm at odds for like, say, what do I do in this situation? We have an advisory board of two to four that are extremely valuable all in their respective regards. So I have a CEO coach. Uh, you interviewed Ned Renzi previously. Mm-hmm. His partner, Ivan, who's based on the West Coast, is CEO coach for me. Um, we meet, you know, twice a month and keep it very uh, tactical in terms of what needs to be executed, but also kind of pre-identifying areas that could be issues later on. And he's someone who's built, you know, multi-hundred million dollar businesses. And so he's seen it at much later later stages than I'm at. Um, we have a, uh, a gentleman who has been, you know, CTO, VP of engineering of six different um, venture backed startups here in Pittsburgh. He's really kind of a uh, cornerstone in the ecosystem from a technical side. So whenever we run into, you know, issues on, on a dev side, on uh, engineering. He's kind of the critical resource we lean on there. We have one that's a, a farmer that's actually invested in the company. That's one of our growers, but incredibly insightful to his respective practice and his industry. Um, and then also uh, an early mentor from Carnegie Mellon as well. And so that's just a, a handful of the most active ones that we interact with. But there's also been two or three along the road that have just said, hey, if you ever need anything, we're here, like, you know, let me know done this before, so on and so forth, that are just a call away. So I think um, it's really important to try to make sure that when those resources become available, you might not need it today, but to realize the value of it because you may need it tomorrow. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Well, this has been fantastic. I'm really excited about what you guys are doing and uh, glad we got to share the story of Skycision a little bit. As we aim towards wrapping up, before we ask our last two questions, Brendan, is there anything else that you were hoping to talk about today that I didn't give you a chance to? No, I think this was great. I appreciate you coming by. Awesome. Uh, well, if people want to learn more about Skycision, what digital coordinates can we give folks who want to learn more and connect with you and the company? Absolutely. You can go to uh, www.skycision.com, and that's S-K-Y-C-I-S-I-O-N. Um, there's a form at the bottom of the page. You can fill that out, uh, share your interest, and connect with us there. Um, for me personally, you can find me on LinkedIn. Brendan Carroll should come up pretty easily. Beautiful. 
We'll have those linked in the show notes going deep with Aaron.com slash podcast is the place to find them for this and every episode of the show. But as we do at the end of each episode, Brendan, I want to give you the mic a final time to issue an actionable personal challenge for the audience. Absolutely. So um, I'm going to make it specific. Something I've done recently, um, challenge the audience to, for at least one week, try to only check their email twice a day. Once in the morning, mid-afternoon, once at night, whatever you want to do, limit it to twice a day and see how that impacts your productivity. Um, I found a tool that's basically a... Uh, email do not disturb you turn that on stops distracting you be amazed at how much more you get done every time you check it so those two times per day are you going for inbox zero or what's the goal in those two like focused times <laughs> i think my inbox is over 500 <laughs> on reds at this point so um no I, th- I think it is responding to everything that's um actionable um there's also another tool called boomerang where you can boomerang it back to, uh, basically it's, it sends the email away to come back two days later if you want to re- deal with it two days later. So what you can do then is like, okay, what is my priority? Rem- respond to the priorities, either boomerang the rest of it or delete it or you know, store it for follow-up for later. Um, and it's you know basically interlace that with your prioritization. Yeah, it's a pretty good heuristic that if you've boomeranged a message like five times, it's probably <laughs> just not a priority. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Awesome. Uh, well, I... I need to take that challenge myself. I am not a great <laughs> practitioner of it. So thank you for that. And uh, sure. thank you so much for spending your time with us today. Awesome. Sounds good. Thank you. We just went deep with Brendan Carroll. Hope everyone out there has a fantastic day. Hey, thank you so much for listening to another episode of Going Deep with Aaron Watson. We have a ton of great interviews in the back catalog with other Pittsburgh entrepreneurs. You can message me at any time at Aaron at pipercreative.co for a personalized recommendation. But if you want to go into the back catalog of ways, I would definitely check out episode 123 with Tucker Max and 118 with Kevin Kelly. These are two of my favorite authors and both have deep insights about marketing, about technology, and about what is going to be going on in the future. One of my favorite topics of discussion, hence the interview that you just heard with Brendan and many more to come down the road. So keep it tuned to Going Deep with Aaron Watson. Thanks for listening. Connect with Aaron on Twitter and Instagram at AaronWatson59.